Hello, and welcome to the Reaction Podcast with me, Deputy Editor Rachel Cunliffe, and Reaction Editor Ian Martin. This week, we look at how the House of Commons finally passed the point of no return with Brexit. We examine Jeremy Corbyn's brief moment of triumph at Prime Minister's questions, and then move on to the legal obstacles already slamming the brakes on Trump's immigration ban. Actually, let's start with Trump, because that's where the most most recent and most, I think, astounding news comes from. Mm. He passes an executive order, the world goes mad, and now the American legal system is really readjusting itself. And we had a victory last night. Well, I think it's a victory. What do you think? You think of it as a victory. I mean, I think it's a victory in terms of the American system showing that it works and that actually the... The, the, the system is functioning precisely as you would want it to. What actually happened was that you had the Ninth Court of Appeals, which handles um, cases involving executive orders and, uh, and executive agencies, and it found unanimously, the three judges found unanimously against the administration. The three judges, one of whom was appointed by Bush. So these are not all three Democratic judges. Precisely. I mean, it tends to have a reputation as a liberal leaning court uh, and it was denounced by some senators instantly as a left-wing and virtually communist court which is a bit of an exaggeration but even so as you say one of the three judges was report was appointed by uh, bush so it can hardly be uh, accused of being a democrat um, supporter so trump of course inevitably absolutely furious tweets um see you in court in in all caps in all caps. And of course, I mean, there's the irony of him saying see you in court when he's just been defeated in court. But what he means is that it's probably now going to go to the um, Supreme Court or the order will have to be redrafted. But the big lesson for the for the Trump White House is that how you draft these executive orders matters, detail well, matters. They tried to do it too quickly and they tried to do it without involving any of the relevant agencies under the, the cover of, of secrecy. And I think that might work in, in a campaign, uh, just throwing stuff together, yeah. but it doesn't work in, in terms of government. And looking at the various legal issues that the, that the lawyers pointed out, there were all kinds of um, ambiguities, in particular with permanent residents and, and green mm. card holders, which could have been dealt with very easily afterwards by uh, President Trump, as, as we now call him, uh, mm. so-called President Trump, uh, clarifying the order and saying that it didn't apply to, to green card holders, which are protected un under US law. He didn't do that because to do that would have been to acknowledge that it wasn't the most perfectly drafted law to start with. So I think this administration's arrogance is coming through both in how they put this bill, this, this executive order together, and in how they responded to the chaos. They, they campaigned as insurgents and they're trying to govern as insurgents. And we've seen this time and time again, actually, although Trump is obviously a, a, a glaring example of it, is that business people, you know, I'm a free market person myself, 100% in favour of business, but business people very often think that politics is easy and that you just charge in and you kick ass write some orders, inject some energy, get some dynamism going, and everything changes. But politics and business are entirely different games. And you just can't function like that in a system like the American system, which is a system of laws. 
the US is a country of laws and a country of lawyers, and this is just what happened this week is a forerunner of years of this stuff. The Trump administration and its actions are just going to be litigated endlessly by thousands of lawyers in uh, thousands of cases. But there's also a really worrying side, especially to Trump's response to the now uh, three court judgments that have, have gone against him. Um, and, and that is an attack on the judiciary and the court system as a whole. The judiciary is one of the three, and some would say the most important uh, area of, of, of government. There's the executive, the legislative branch, and then the judiciary. Um, and his attack on uh, the the first judge who who ruled against who sorry who temporarily suspended the order mm. he called him a so-called judge and then he blamed any future terrorist attacks that might happen on the court system that is the same kind of antagonism that we've seen with Trump and the media Trump and the Democrats remember that he referred to the media as a whole as the opposition party yeah. There's such a us v them mentality between the White House and increasingly everyone else. It's going to spread, I think, to Congress any time Congress tries to block or slow down anything that, that Trump wants to do. And I think that while we can celebrate the legal system working, kicking in and working the way that it, it should, I still think there's something quite worrying about where this is headed and how it is eroding trust in America's institutions. Yeah, that's obviously the, the danger um, that's a that's a very good analysis, and the worst aspect of this is that when the system is least likely to work is in an emergency, as we talked. a terrorist attack, yeah. Precisely, when you get some sort of national emergency, and it is regard there's just this public atmosphere and demand for action. And remember, those those the executive order on travel ban is popular. Is polling yeah. is polling it? I think fifty seven percent approval this week but if you get an atmosphere of, of crisis and the president seems to be taking strong action and the system tries to counter him that's when you get into more um, dangerous territory but he's finding out in other areas very good example this week with China and the way in which he seems to rode back on his previous position and he's said that he um, endorses the one China uh, policy which is a big big concession for Trump to make for someone who campaigned as taking on China. So it's an, there's another example where he's, he's being hemmed in by, in this case, by foreign policy realities. Clearly someone has said to him, presuming Rex Tillerson at state, or someone in the White House has pointed out, look, you've got enough on your plate at the moment without having this fight on the fundamentals with, uh, with China. I also think that he has a tendency to start fights with everyone and then just kind of... Uh, Work back from that. Yeah, yeah. Create, create policy afterwards. And I think everyone was very shocked uh, back in November where uh, he had the phone call with the president of Taiwan, which seemed to go against, or did go against decades of US-China policy. And then he said that the one-China policy wasn't necessarily uh, right for America at the moment and that angered China a lot and now he has as you said completely sort of gone back from that but I guess he succeeded in a way with what he wanted to do which was to make the Chinese worried and to show that he's not afraid of, of starting fights and really most Americans probably don't care that much about the one China policy and whether the US recognises mm. Taiwan or not and 
what 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 Trump has managed to do is present himself as somebody strong who's not afraid of of, of starting fights, and then just completely fail to deliver on that. As I think he will, <laughs> I, I think he will fail to deliver on many of his campaign promises. Although, as we've talked before, you're slightly more optimistic. <laughs> I wouldn't say optimistic. Um, yeah, slightly more sanguine. But you're you're right. Yeah, America is. Uh, so that's America. America's a bit of a mess. Thank goodness, everything is so brilliantly organised in Britain, and everything's yes. going <laughs> going so well. Uh, but as you suggested earlier, big week in the in the uh, Commons. Another big week, and I think it really it 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 raises the curtain on. On the on the Brexit process, we're now we're going to get down to the nitty gritty now in terms of the government will have to map out or lay out its negotiating position. Really, only in a matter of weeks once Article Fifty is triggered, and it's then that you're going to start to see jostling for position among government departments, rows breaking out as some cabinet ministers think that a particular position on a on an industry or a concession that might be being made by David Davis and his team that it goes too far and that's going to test Theresa May and the the government um, certainly in the in the in the Westminster bubble that's the anticipation whether or not that's uh, impacts outside I'm not clear it almost sounds there like you're defending Jeremy Corbyn who was uh, <laughs> incredibly silent during during the debate and then after the votes have been counted and everyone had gone home. Then said, the real fight starts now, uh, to which everyone else said, you missed it, <laughs> um, essentially. But so do you think that there's, you talk about government departments yeah. and uh, within the Tory party kind of jostling for, for positions. Do you think there's a role for Labour as the opposition in that? Well, there should be. And I, I, I think it's a, I'm not a fan of Corbyn, obviously. But I think there is a real... Uh, it's close to being a national emergency the fact that we don't have a functioning opposition there are lots of uh, Tory ministers or MPs who would tell you that that's a ridiculous assessment that it's actually rather healthy that the Labour Party is in a mess but I, I just think there's something corrosive longer term about there not being a clear and coherent uh, mainstream opposition that could stands well, a chance of stands a chance the of winning. Latest, the latest polls out today show that uh, Jeremy Corbyn is unfavourable among every demographic, yes. including Labour voters. He has net unfavourable ratings among Labour voters. So this revolution, this this Corbynista revolution that was meant to happen, that was meant to be about. Um, inspiring people who didn't vote, who weren't politically engaged to uh, come to the cause of, of, of socialism. Not only has that not happened, but they've managed to alienate the moderate Tories, the centre ground, mm. and now the majority of, of Labour voters as well. It's been an epic disaster, as it was predictable and was predicted, and he's completely and utterly useless and doesn't connect. I think the interesting thing for Labour is... is can someone, and there have been rumours this week, denied as fake news by Mr Corbyn? Everything's denied as fake news. There have, been, um, there, there have been there been lots of rumours that he's going to announce that he's going soon or at some point this year and that the leadership is lining up a favoured a favored replacement in someone called Rebecca Long-Bailey, who I just assumed, you know, I'm 
pretty well um, versed in politics, but I actually just thought when I first heard the name that it was a spoof, but no, this person exists. <laughs> Um, and possibly Clive Lewis, who who resigned from the shadow cabinet over Article Fifty this week, but it's not exactly an, it's not an impressive array. At least when the Tories had leadership battles when they were in the doldrums, it, it, it tended to involve people that the voters had heard of, people like Ken Clark and Portillo. So, I think the, the place that, and I've written about this this week, is the place that Labour and mainstream Labour should be looking is Germany, where something really fascinating is going on, which is Martin Schulz, uh, who's left um, Brussels in the European uh, um, European setup and has gone back to head up the SPD challenge against Merkel and is now ahead in the polls. But uh, he's, he's hardly an unknown, so it's not like he's some insurgent German mm. politician coming out of obscurity to lead the party potentially to victory. So is there anyone... Who is it? Sort of an, an old, an old name in Labour who's sort of no longer around that you think could. That's could take precisely it. On. it. I mean, my my money's on Ed Balls, who, if he can do strictly come dancing, he can do anything. I, do, I, I mean, some people might laugh at that, but people laughed a year ago this week when Donald Trump won in New Hampshire. Well, they're not laughing now. So, I, yes, I think that their only hope is to persuade someone in highly unusual circumstances to just stand, stand up and say, right, Britain needs an opposition um, and that person can be me and you're right, Schultz is an established veteran figure. Could be Ed Balls? How would, how would Ed Balls get back in? Maybe in a by-election? Maybe if some Labour MP in a safe seat sacrificed, uh, sacrificed it? Ed Balls says he doesn't want to come back. Alan Johnson probably wouldn't do it and at that point you kind of really run out of run out of names um, I'm certainly not going to mention Tony Blair but there, <laughs> there isn't that there is an absence of a, a person but a, a vacuum there to be filled and no, no sign that someone's going to do it yet Corbyn did have one short-lived victory this week though at Prime Minister's question yeah. time uh, where he managed to uh, catch Theresa May off guard and Theresa May uh, for all her many qualities, is not the most adept at sort of dodging new attacks. Uh, well put. Not, not, not like um, David Cameron was. Um, and these, these leaked texts that seem to show that the Conservative Westminster government may have colluded with a Conservative-run council to uh, prevent a referendum on a rise in, in council tax. How bad is that for the Tories, do you think? I think in the short term, in terms of Corbyn performing well at PMQs, I think the Tories were actually quite pleased because it, it props him props him up and the Tories are, would love to get to the next election with Jeremy Corbyn still still in, in place, which kind of looks un, looks unlikely. You're right in that the, the Prime Minister she's very good at speeches and she's got she's perfected the art of the significant speech. And even if it doesn't contain that much content, delivering it well, she's poor at thinking on her feet, and she was rather exposed and beaten by Corbyn, really effectively. But you know, people can remember what happened with William Hague and Tony Blair. William Hague would regularly marmalise um, um, Tony Blair. William Hague would would very often win those encounters. And it 
didn't really resonate at all in the country. It gave political journalists like me great amusement. But when it came to the general election in 2001, Labour won another landslide. So I, I don't think it'll have an enormous impact. Where I think it might be damaging for the Tories is the, the underlying story of if they have done a deal with Surrey, there's always been the suspicion that there are all sorts of deals. Tory councils would say that they're badly treated, but I think the whole thing is probably going to be FOI'd uh, by journalists in the next next year or so, and there might be some some embarrassing stuff that emerges, which could be tricky for the Tories in um, in local election terms. But I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't say that it makes Jeremy Corbyn any less likely to be a complete failure as leader of the opposition. And then there's the underlying story beneath why they were threatening a referendum on council tax rises, which is the social care and NHS healthcare crisis, uh, which is kind of, it's in the, it's in the news, but it gets uh, sort of squashed out any time there's a new Brexit story. And actually at any other time, this would be the top story every day or, or yeah. do you disagree you think this is something that happens every year when emergency services get overwhelmed in the winter no, I, I think i think it's different this year something has shifted it has been i suppose it's been it's been top top of the news agenda on the bbc the bbc have been running it very very hard hasn't necessarily been elsewhere i think what's different this year is that this year is widely seen as a warning that the social care crisis or social care problem is merging with the NHS problem and that the capacity capacity difficulties there this winter came if not close to disaster maybe even in some hospitals um, got to the disastrous stage and we're at a point where we need to have a proper grown-up conversation about how social care is funded the thing that worries me or concerns me is that it is now said that we are to, the consensus seems to be emerging that we need a grand national strategy to deal with social care on the model of the NHS, which strikes me as a very, very bad idea. Of course there's a need for a national policy, but I certainly wouldn't replicate um, the problems we've got with the NHS of over-centralisation lack of market mechanisms, lack of um, price transparency by nationalising old age and creating a, a national service. So I think there is a, there's a need for a proper discussion, but it extends right through the National Health Service, social care. We're going to have to pay for these, in, pay for these things increasingly in, in, in um, innovative ways, and we need to rethink about how healthcare is and old age is funded and how good care is incentivized. I have three responses to that. Uh, one is that I don't have an answer on social care, but I'd be very, very interested in hearing anyone who has interesting and innovative ideas, uh, because as you said, it is a, a coming crisis and it is only going to get more severe and the conversation isn't happening. Uh, the second point is linked to that, which is it seems that this government is so concerned with Brexit and with international trade deals and with Britain's standing in the world that there just isn't the time or the energy or even the incentive to really deal with this. This is a difficult problem and 
any solution is going to make a lot of people very angry and very unhappy because it does not have an ideal solution. And while we're talking about are we going to have a potential trade deal with the US or or with China or with India at some point, mm. this is the kind of thing that we need national leadership on and it's, it's just not, not happening. Um, and my third point is I think Jeremy Hunt should be out of the Department for Health and that is nothing against him as a person, but I think the amount of antagonism that exists between him and the, uh, the not just the junior doctors, but healthcare workers in general means that it's going to be very difficult to reach any kind of productive solution. You can fire all the doctors or you can fire Jeremy Hunt and one is easier to replace than the other. And I think that Theresa May had an excellent opportunity to just hit the restart button when it came to conservative healthcare policy when she became Prime Minister. She sacked most of the cabinet, most of her ministers, especially in key roles, on new people. She seemed to fire and then keep uh, Jeremy Hunt, which was everyone was very confused about, but he kept his position. And I think the situation there is now so toxic that there really can't be any progress. And until you get somebody new in, that's going to be very difficult. I think, to be fair to him, he was seeking a move. So I think that I think there was there was no one more keen to move <laughs> on to another cabinet position than, than Jeremy Hunt, and it just didn't work out with the way in which the various positions were filled. But I suppose you should, on an, on an optimistic note, just observe that this crisis in social care is a byproduct of, byproduct of something which is hugely welcome, which is that people are living much, living much longer. And that comes, of course, with all sorts of problems on conditions like dementia and Parkinson's and the, the, brain, is the, and the brain is the next frontier, as a doctor said to me recently. But it's still it's positive. Life expectancy has, has, has gone through the roof, not just here, but also in the developing world. And it, I think it's fitting then that we just um, finish by remarking a little bit about uh, Hans Rousing, who died this, who died yes, this pay, week. Pay tribute to, uh, I think, my, my, my favourite description of him as a data visionary. Uh, the, the Swedish academic, uh, very interested in healthcare policy, who just shot to prominence by showing with data and statistics all the ways in which every day so many things are are getting better. Extreme poverty is down, infant mortality is down, education in particular, women's education across the developing world is up. Uh, slowly in countries like Nigeria and Indonesia and India and uh, sort of elsewhere, elections and democracy are moving forward even if it's not perfect um i love watching clips of, of of him just tearing apart all the negative coverage of everything that's going wrong and showing all the little stories and the numbers in particular behind the stories that show that that things are improving we'll miss him so we end on an optimistic note if you've enjoyed this episode of the Reaction Podcast, then don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate us five stars. You can also read more from Ian Martin and me at the Reaction website at www.reaction.life. Thank you.